show me who a person hangs with, and I'll tell you what kind of a person they are. And I knew he was a, a guy with a handshake. That's all you needed from him. So I became the first million-dollar athlete. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six- to seven-figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and I'm here today with one of my childhood sporting heroes. This man is a legend. He's one of only three individuals to score over a thousand goals in major league professional hockey. I'm speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Bobby Hall. Welcome to the show, Bobby. Uh, thanks, Nikki. It's great to be here, of course, at my age. It's great to be in. <laughs> great to be anywhere. Nice talking to you, and I've had a wonderful few days here in Toronto with uh, you and a group of your friends and and Ryan Lewis and and his office staff. Yeah, Ryan is band of merry, fabulous, awesome human beings. Man, it's great to be hanging out with people like you and people like Ryan. It's not the truth, for real. So. Bobby, I want to ask you um, some questions because I've read about all this stuff growing up, but I wanted to just hear it from the horse's mouth, as it were. Could you tell me about the curved stick story? How'd that come to be? Oh, yes. It's a very uh, popular story. Uh, people want to know how the uh, hook stick came about. And it was back in 1963. I'm playing... Uh, in Chicago with my good friend and and great teammate, uh, Mr. Stan Makita. Yes. And uh, Billy Ray was our coach, and he was down at one end of the rink working with the rest of the guys, and Stan and I were up at center ice. And Stan never had much good to say about our hockey, our, our weapons, the Northland Pro hockey sticks. And uh, when he didn't like a stick, he would just – lay on it, curse the stick, lay on it, and snap it. And I said, Stanley, I said, don't break that stick if you don't like it. I know a 100 little guys that would love to have one of your sticks. If you don't like it, put it on my rack, and I'll see that some deserving young lad gets it. And then it was again, curse again, and he'd lay on it, and he'd snap the stick. Well, this this particular <laughs> morning at practice, um, uh, he's cursing his stick, and uh, he's laying on it, but the stick is so lithe and willowy, and he's only about 165 pounds soaking wet, he can't break the stick. And he tried, and he tried, and then we were standing cl close to our bench, so over he went to our bench door, and he jammed the blade in the edge of the door and started to reef on it trying to break it that way. Well, what happened? Uh, the uh, blade split down through the middle, and the uh, bottom half of the blade stayed in the door wedge, and the top half uh, flipped out. 
and he kept just still kept raring on it. And uh, uh, after uh, the, a few tries at trying to break the stick that way, uh, he jerked it out of the door. And here in the bottom uh, half of the stick that he the blade, there was a heck of a hook in in the blade. And of course, Stan shot right, and the hook was in his favor. And uh, we were we were so dull back then, we didn't even know enough to bring two sticks up from down below for practice. So <laughs> so the routine was go rap on the glass. The trainer would come halfway up the twenty two stairs that we came up and went down to get to our dressing room to see who it was, and then he'd go back down and bring up a new stick for the person rapping on the glass. Well, while the trainer was up and saw it was Stan and went back down to get Makita a new stick, there were a bunch of pucks out in front of the net. And I see him, goes, he goes over and he starts flinging those, cup, those pucks in the net. One after another, after another, he jettisoned them in the net. So after about eight or ten pucks in, the trainer came up with the stick and uh, Stan threw his broken stick over the glass up and tried to th throw it up in the organ loft in the old Chicago Stadium where Hal Melgard used to play so many great tunes during the game. And him, when when he didn't like the referees, he'd play three blind mice, three <laughs> blind mice. Well, anyhow, uh, Stan headed back to Ward Center where, and I'm wa and I'm watching when I when he got close enough, I said. Stanley, what the hell has got into you? Are you out of your mind? What were you doing down there in front of the net, flinging those pucks in one after another, after another, after another? He said, Bobby, when I tried to break my stick, I put a hell of a wow in the blade. And can you ever shoot the puck with that hook and the blade? Well, it was a combination of the hook and the thinness of the blade because if you remember when you were playing road hockey and you wore a stick down to when it was about the width of a puck, when you went out on the ice, you could really shoot the puck off the ice with that thin blade. And that was the combination of the hook and the thin blade. And he said, after practice, I'm going to call Northland and ask them to send me a half a dozen sticks uh, with, a, with a hook in the, bl the blade and I said, well, while you're at it, uh, ask them to send me a half a dozen, only hook them left. Left-handed. Left-handed yeah, because sure. I shot left and Stan shot right. And uh, that was in 1963. And from then till about 1970, um, we revolutionized the game of hockey. And then, sure then finally there were a bunch of, of consenters, well, not consenters, what do you call that? Non-consenters. People, yeah, the nonconformists, nonconformists, yeah. non <laughs> like a lot of our people today in in government. But uh, uh, Stan, uh, 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 or, or the NHL, put together a group uh, uh, headed by Dutch Van Dielen. And when playoffs came upon us in '70, I believe um, he'd send every playoff game. He'd send the group over and we had to pick out three sticks that we were going to use in a game that night and uh, so they could mark them and say they were all right 
Of course, I'd bring out some straight sticks, and they'd mark them fine. And as soon as their back was turned, out came the torch, heat up the blade, step on it, and put my hook in them. And and I defied them to ever challenge me, and they never did. So that's the the story. And uh, we revolutionized the game with the way we could shoot the puck, Uh, get it and shoot it. We didn't have to stop it and then... And and then change our strategy. It was like a high lie basket. Yeah. You, you just went with the pass, and then when it, at the end of your momentum, then fling it the other way. And it was very positive for a lot of us that knew how to use the hook to be able to take that puck and shoot it all in one motion. That's awesome. That we practice how long goalies, eh? <laughs> oh, we practice get it and shoot it. That was our nice. motto, and and to. Think, think back on it. When I went to Winnipeg, we'd we'd have shooting clinics, and my son Br- Brett was just a, a ten or twelve year old. He let me see, born in sixty four, so this would be seventy four. Wow. So he'd be ten. He'd be ten years old, and he used to stand and watch us and watch us. And after a bit, I'd say, "Brett, come on over here and get in line." And there were only two of us on that Winnipeg Jet team. In the in 1974, that could take the puck and shoot it all in one motion, uh, any better than Brett Hall, and that was maybe Anders Hedberg and and yours truly. Uh, Brett could take that puck and wheel it uh, just as good as we. And uh, at, at 10 years old, that's that's, amazing. that's why he became the greatest sniper that the NHL ever knew, the greatest goal scorer in the history of the game. Well, he's your son, man. I mean, he, he <laughs> not grew- just because he's my son. <laughs> no, not just because he's your son, but you know, he definitely had who you hang around matters, right? That's important. I know oh, you believe that. Hey, tell me, show me who a person hangs with, and I'll tell you what kind of a person they are. That's fantastic, great insight on your part, Bobby, and it's the truth. It's thanks, the truth. Thanks, pal. So, tell me about the first time Brett laced up a pair of skates. Well, <laughs> he didn't lace them up. I, Chico Mackey and I, a condom at at a Christmas party, uh, put on by the Chicago Blackhawks at the old Chicago Stadium. I I said, Chico, I'm going to need your help. Now, this is uh, my two eldest boys, Bobby and Blake, wanted skates on when they were two. And Bobby was a 61 model and Blake a 62 model. And Brett's a 64 model. And he didn't want any skates on. And it was he's five or six years old run, running up and down the ice, uh, maybe, <laughs> se- maybe seven, I don't know. And uh, uh, everyone else had skates on, and he's got an old pair of uh, the r- r- rotten uh, tennis shoes on running up and down the ice uh, playing with the guys with skates on. And uh, I'm sitting, Chico and I are sitting in our bench with our skates on, of course, and uh, I said, Jekyll, I'm going to try to count him over here. So, so uh, uh, he's here. He, here he comes down the ice tour. I said, Brett, come here. Got something for you. He said, No, Dad, I'm playing hockey. I'm playing. And he was a sucker for candy. And I said, Brett, I got some candy here. You'd like? <laughs> oh, okay, okay, Dad, make it quick because I'm on on the on the rush. And uh, as soon as he came in the door, I guzzled up. <laughs> And, and I threw him on the our bench, and I said, "Grab him, Chickle." And of course, he knew he knew something. Was <laughs> he up, knew something dude. was up, and uh, he started wailing and kicking and and I 
tore those old stinking running shoes off him, the old wool socks he had on, and I had a brand new pair of skates for him. Oh, awesome. it was, I was going to get him for Christmas, and I was going to get him on sooner or later. So I said, hold him, Chico. And with a lot of cursing and swearing and kicking and gnashing up teeth, yeah. uh, I got the skates on him and got him tightened on him. And so I put him under my arm, and I went to put him out on the ice. And I thought to myself, if I put him just out on the ice, he's going to just turn and flop in uh, in our bench again. So I, I had him under my arm, as I said, and I skated all the way across 85 feet at center ice in the old Chicago Stadium and plopped him down on the far side of the, the rink. Well, I turned around and skated backwards to watch what was going to ensue and laid there for a few seconds and then tried to get up and down he'd go. And tried to get up and down he'd go. But every time he got up, he was he was spending more time on the blades than on his ass. <laughs> and uh, finally he got about, oh, 10 or 12 feet out in front of Chico and I. And uh, a big grin came across his face. And he just wheeled. <clears throat> it wheeled and away he went. And uh, uh, the lights were out in the Chicago Stadium and the Zamboni had come out to make and made the ice. And in the darkness, Brett and I were the only two left out there. And from then on, she was all downhill. That's awesome. Man. That's awesome. That's a great story. Oh, I love that. Wonderful. Two great stories. Uh, it, one for my career and one for Brett's career. career. Yeah, if, if I'd have let him go, likely another couple, year or two, without putting skates on him, maybe he never would have put, put a pair of skates on. Unbelievable. After, yeah, it is. As soon as I put the skates on him, away he went. As soon as he, as soon as he found out that they weren't going to deter him, he was all for it. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, Bobby, another great story that you've got is the story of becoming the world's first million-dollar athlete. Could you tell us that story? Because that's a hell of a story. I love that story. Well, I always tell people I was the first million-dollar athlete, either two-legged or four-legged. <laughs> Seabiscuit hadn't made a million yet, <laughs> yet back then. And uh, uh, I think it was it uh, behooved me to let the people know that it was running our game. Uh, that they were taking too much of the share. And I'd, I'd stand at the blue line when they were singing our national anthem, and I would count the people in the stands at 22,000. There wasn't an empty seat in the building at 22,000 people. And then we'd have uh, half a dozen uh, exhibition games, and then I'd multiply uh, what I thought there was an average of what the people were making on our team in Chicago and time the, the number of players. And uh, they were having all their expenses paid, their their salaries paid out of those half a dozen exhibition games. And I said, that isn't fair. And I said, I'm going to, some way or another, I'm going to show the sports world, not only hockey, but uh, we're being hard done by and we needed to be making more money. So just at that same time, the WHA, uh, people were talking about 
the WHA, the World Hockey Association, yeah. and uh, wanting to form a, a new professional league. And, uh, of course, my contract was up at the end of that uh, 72, 71, 72 year. And uh, what apparently they did, uh, the WHA people, they took all the names of the NHL personnel that didn't have a contract for the 72 season onward, 72, 73 on on, and they put them in up, they put names and put them in a hat and apparently drew names out of the hat. And uh, uh, it just so happened that Ben Haskin from the Winnipeg Jets, owner of the Winnipeg Jets franchise, drew my name. And this was around Grey Cup time uh, in Canada, and we were uh, playing out in Vancouver. And when we came in, uh, Bob Turner, who I'd played with, uh, mm -hmm. he'd come from the Canadians to our, our team um, and, and was a great asset to our Blackhawk team. Uh, he met me at the uh, Hotel Vancouver and said, Bobby, I work for so-and-so in Winnipeg, and uh, he owns the, the new franchise of the World Hockey Association, and he's in the parked in the hotel just across the street. Would you mind coming with me and meeting him and saying hello? And I said, Bob, let me get rid of my bag and freshen up a little, and I'll be right with you. And as it happened, we went over and met Ben Hatskin for the first time. Big, strong guy had played for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and... Uh, we made small talk, and I liked him. It was straightforward. And before I left, he said, Bobby, um, I want you to come to Winnipeg and play for my Winnipeg Jets team, and I, I want to give you $250,000 a year. And I said, Mr. Hatskin, that was very generous of you, but I said, I think I can get $250,000 from the, from the Blackhawks in my new contract. And uh, uh, besides that, We've got the rest of the season to go and playoffs uh, before I can talk to anybody about uh, another contract other than the Chicago Blackhawks. And uh, uh, it went from uh, me meeting Ben uh, and liking him to him introducing me to uh, the other uh, people involved in the WHA, and they started to call my accountant and uh, wanting to know what it would take for me to come to Winnipeg. And uh, so many times I told my aunt, I'm not going to Winnipeg. I have a, I have five kids and that's an extravagant wife, and I've never been to Winnipeg. And I don't know how long this is going to last, and uh, I'm not going to leave Chicago. I love Chicago. I love the fans. I'd, I'd spent 15 years there, and, and we'd, we had a great camaraderie uh, between myself and the fans. Uh, they loved the way I played, and I loved the, the city, and uh, I didn't want to go anywhere. Uh, so one thing led to another and to another, and I got sick of them calling and uh, sick of my accountant asking me, well, what would it take for you to go to a new league? And finally I said, okay, if you want to know, this is the way I look at it. I think I have five more good years. I was 32 then. I said, I think I have five more good years uh, to play. And now uh, I believe 
that I can get $250,000 as a contract from the Chicago Blackhawks in a fi- on a five-year deal. So that would be a million, a million two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So I said, uh, if I go to the WHA, Winnipeg Jets, and it might happen to fold after one year, I'll I'll get my two hundred and fifty thousand, but I'll be owed a million dollars. I said, tell those guys if they want to give me a million dollars, they've got themselves a hockey player. Ha ha. Now that's nineteen seventy two, and I thought after I'd said it, I said, whew, you think a lot of yourself. What cowboy is worth a million dollars in 1972? And uh, the phone rang shortly after uh, I accountant talked to the WHA people. And I said, well, what'd they say, Harvey? He said, they said, don't do anything until we talk to you. I said, you mean to say they're going to try to raise a million dollars for this cowboy? He said, don't be surprised if they don't. I said, suck a wild seaboard, Chris. And uh, one thing led to another, and uh, within a week, a phone call came. Uh, They had a half a million dollars. And uh, another few days, and the phone call came in and said they had 750000 And I said, Harvey... I said, if if they've got seven hundred fifty thousand, Ben Hadskin will find a way to raise a quarter of a million dollars. I'm gone. Yeah. <laughs> we had no writing, no agreement, just over the telephone. And finally, on another day, they called and said, "We got Bobby, a million dollars." I said, "I'm I'm gone." I I I, I suppose I could have said, uh, "I was just kidding." And if you can get me a million, yeah, then I want two million and stuff like that. But I'm a person of my word. And I uh, I said, I gave my word. I'm gone. I'm I'm out of Chicago. And I'm going to be a Winnipeg Jet in, in 1972 from then on. And uh, the, the contract read a uh, million dollars bonus. And we went to Minneapolis. We chartered a plane, went to Minneapolis and Minnesota to collect a million, and then came back to Chicago, to Winnipeg at uh, uh, Portage in Maine and uh, to sign the playing side of the contract with Ben Hatskett in front of hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, um, my playing contract read $250,000 per year as long as I wanted to play at 100000 if I wanted to coach or manage. As long as I wanted to coach or manage. So I became the first million-dollar athlete, two-legged or four-legged, and then was able to collect 250000 a year the rest of my playing career with Ben Hatskin and the Winnipeg Jets. That's incredible. Quite a story, isn't it? It is quite a story. For this little guy from Point Anne, Ontario, 500 people and 600 dogs <laughs> and 10 brothers and sisters. <laughs> but you know, Bobby, there's something you said right now that I think is very important. You know, one of the things that I'm passionate about is uh, is men, manhood, and masculinity. In fact, I run an organization called the Sovereign Man Movement that's all about helping make men more masculine. I say make men masculine again. I borrowed that from from President Trump. But 
there was a time where a man's word meant everything, right? That's the way I thought. And the fact that you gave your word and you kept it, even though you loved Chicago and you, you loved where you were, it, it says something about your character. And I'm wondering if you could chat a bit about the importance of keeping your word as a human being, to be sure, but definitely as a man. Well, from then on, I've, I've found many indications of um, some of us not being uh, uh, the men of our word uh, time after time after time. And uh, uh, I'm 80, I'll be 83 years old, January 3, 1922. And uh, uh, I found, especially the last few years, how important it should have been for people to keep their word. And uh, I lived uh, most of my time in Chicago. Uh, I was in Winnipeg and, uh, after I was in, uh, in Florida after I was in Winnipeg. And uh, when I went back to Chicago, I uh, found out that Rocky Wirtz had taken over from his father, Bill, and Bill had taken over, of course, from Rocky's grandfather, uh, Arthur Wirtz. And uh, likely one of the reasons that I maybe found it easier to go to Winnipeg than what may reach the surface, they were not men of their words before that, several years before that. We had agreed on a contract what they were going to do, and they never did it. I never asked for a, it in writing. Uh, I thought a shake of the hand was sufficient. was sufficient to put the contract in in motion. But uh, they reneged, and uh, I, in so many words, called them puppets and bum, bumsteads, and they suspended me for 15 games of the start of one of the seasons. And... Uh, it just it made me apologize for that, and uh, I thought about uh, very strongly going to Russia. Uh, I, I thought, I wonder, I'd had by that time three or four 50-goal seasons and uh, wondered under their conditioning how much better I could have been, how much more I could have contributed to the game of hockey, uh, the game that I love so much. And, and uh, dreamed about playing uh, when, I, when I was a kid, from when I was a kid, as far back as I can remember. I was going to become a professional hockey player, um, either I was going to get big enough or old enough. <laughs> and in 1957, when I was 18 years old, I guess I became big enough and old enough uh, <laughs> and, and made the dream come true. And But uh, uh, Bill and Arthur Wirtz reneged on me, and I guess it was in my the back of my mind, the hell with them. I gave them 15 years of blood, sweat, and tears of my, the prime of my career, and they didn't appreciate it. They hadn't even offered me a contract yet. Mm. That's why I was still talking with the WHA, because while they were floating around out in the, in the Caribbean in their 110-foot fed ship, they left some lawyer to try to sign me. And they never did offer me a contract. They didn't offer me a contract until the day before I left for the West uh, to uh, solidify uh, to Ben Hatskin and the WHA that they had themselves a hockey player. 
they they sent somebody to the door uh, with a contract of a million two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Wow! And I said, take this back and give it to Mister Wirtz and tell him to shove it where the where the sun don't shine. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I thought about um, before that going to, to to the Soviet Union to see if I could train a year with like the Red Army team or one of the teams over there, and just to see how much better, if any, I could be after a, a solid year of training uh, via the, the Soviet way, the Russian way. Yeah, yeah, way. Well, they had, a, had quite a system back well, then. Well, of course they did, and they, they had a f- five-person, they'd put a, a group of five together. Uh, for instance, like the Red Army had Harlamov, Petrov, and Mihailov on the front line, with Vasilyev and Gusev uh, as their defense there. That was a group of five, and they played together all the time. And then they had another group of Yakushev, Shadron, and Maltsev with two two more of their defense, and they played as a fivesome. Wow. And uh, I thought it was very important to be able to, uh, to know exactly what your line mates were going to do in your defense pairing. And I... And and I wondered about uh, being in such great shape to maintain that solid effort through sixty minutes of a game, and uh, thought very thought quite a bit about going there, uh, but it it came on so quickly after the after the season was over in seventy two, the WHA put so much pressure out didn't put pressure on me, but I. Relieved the pressure when I told them that I wanted a million dollars, and they came up with it. So wow. that that ended my thought of thinking about going across the ocean to 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 train with the the uh, Russian team. That's amazing. Yep. But you ended up mending your fences with uh, Chicago because you you came back eventually as a team ambassador. Can you tell us how that came about? Well, yeah, I came back through. I talked with good friends of mine. And uh, my wife didn't want to leave Chicago, as I didn't think she would. And uh, I told them that I I had these thoughts about going across the ocean. And they said, oh, you don't want to do that. And then, uh, so I said, well, I didn't want to bugger up my family. I had five kids at that time with an extravagant wife. And, and so I came back and apologized and... and uh, I never got paid for the time I was off and didn't even get a Christmas present. I hear I bought the rest of the team Christmas presents, <laughs> which were little TV sets. Uh, it, it was tough. But then um, after it was all over, my Winnipeg jaunt, and uh, uh, all of a sudden uh, I had rumors that uh, Rocky Wirtz had taken over from his father, Bill, and uh, heard that he was a man of his word. And uh, next thing I know, I get a phone call, and uh, he, he wanted me to be an ambassador with this, uh, with this hockey club. And, and I met with him, and, and I knew he was a, a, a guy that, uh, with a handshake, uh, that's all you needed uh, from him, and uh, took over uh, the, the team and did what the— Chicago fans wanted um, uh, change people where they needed changing and uh, hired 
uh, first of all, myself and Stan Makita as ambassadors, and uh, and 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 from then on, proceeded to have I don't know how many sellouts wow. with the Chicago Blackhawks, and it, it just uh, uh, recently they lost their their record because of not having a competitive team and uh, with other problems that they that are. Uh, the rose uh, stemming back to tonight uh, to twenty ten, just before they uh, were on their way to winning three Stanley Cups in six years. Wow, that's pretty amazing stuff, my friend. <laughs> it's, it, it's quite quite an incredible story. So, the last story I want to ask you about is um, the call you got from President Trump. <laughs> so, tell us that story because that's a fascinating story. Well, it wasn't. I'm I'm turning eighty years old, and uh, a bunch of folks uh, put together a birthday party for me, and we're right in the middle of a my eightieth birthday party um, at a restaurant in Chicago called Tafano's. Great hockey fans and great people. I'd I've known their dad before they took over. Joey took over, and uh, uh, all of a sudden. My telephone rang in my pocket, and I pulled it out, and it was Bobby Orr. And I said, Robert Gordon Orr, the greatest player that ever there was, thank you for calling to wish me a happy birthday. And it wasn't long after that that I was sitting at my kitchen table, and the telephone rang, and it was, it was, he wasn't the present of the United States yet, but he was going to be in in a short while, Donald Trump. And I said, excuse me, I said, who is this calling? And he, he said to me, is this the greatest left-winger that ever played that used to come to New York and kick the shit out of our New York Rangers? <laughs> I said, excuse me, sir, but I said, who's speaking to me? He said, my name is Donald Trump. I said, Mr. Trump, I said, we're having problems here in Chicago. Can you come down and help us rectify it? And he said, as soon as I become president, Bobby, I'll be down there to, to fix things up. That's awesome. So, yeah. That's awesome. And it was because of it was Jeremy Roenick was the guy that, that I, I think set it all up because Jeremy is a great golfer. And, he, and uh, I talked with Mr. Trump, President Trump. Several years before that, said, do you play golf, Bobby? And I said, no. Um, but I said, my wife's just beginning. said, tell her she can play on any course that I own. And Jeremy plays on all his courses. So that's how he became so thick with Mr. President. That's amazing. Yeah. I love it, man. That's a good story. <laughs> I, hey, we need more of Donald Trump. We need Donald Trump, first of all, to come and help us with what has gone on in in our United States and all over the world. I think he's the most effective president since Ronald Reagan. Absolutely, and Ronald was a great one. Ronald Reagan was, was yeah. in my opinion, the greatest president of yep. the last 100-plus right. years. Mm -hmm. And um, it, certainly the, the current president, President Asterix, I like to call him, because he's an <laughs> asterix, he's not an actual president. Even the people that voted for him can see he's a disaster. Even um, the people that voted for him can see he's a disaster. And I Donald wish Trump, the the... The the contrast between President Trump's 
incredible accomplishments, greatest economy ever, most jobs for, for African-Americans, for women, for uh, Asian-Americans, for Hispanic-Americans, peace accords in the Middle East, peace accords in Europe, energy independence, secure border, low crime. And this other fellow has undone all of that. He makes Jimmy Carter look like a good president for crying out loud. It's amazing how narrow-minded our voters must be to put people like that in office. And I, and I played hockey all my life, okay? From when I was a kid, and I'm going to be 83 years old, and I wish I, was put as, oh, I wish I'd have been able to put as much time in um, politics as I did in hockey so I could help things out. But you and, and Donald Trump and your group have got to uh, get it all together uh, to straighten this world out. It's not just it's not just the United States, it's not just Canada, it's the whole world yeah. needs people to straighten them out. Yes, indeed. All right, let's end on a light note. So, <laughs> who, by position, who are your top five hockey players of all time? Um, if you don't mind, uh, Brett Hall, I think, is one of the greatest players that has ever come along, and I think the greatest sniper that has ever uh, played in the National Hockey League. Uh, back when I back when I broke in, um, they had a defenseman by the name of Doug Harvey. Oh, I remember Doug Harvey. That was uh, fabulous with the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, those Canadians used to come into their their end and just turn, and he'd just lay the puck on there. On the rocket stick or the pocket stick or Jeffrey on or Belly Bo or uh, uh, any one of the other forwards, and uh, uh, he was the, he was the guy that was the offensive power on the back line back then. And then, of course, Bobby Orr followed up, and and Bobby Orr is the greatest thing that ever laced on a pair of skates. And then, at, of course, at that time, I played against guys like Gordon Howe, uh, the my first two years were the Rockets' last two years, and a fabulous goal scorer. Uh, and I'll tell you a little story if we have time afterwards. And uh, um, Mr. Jean Beliveau, uh, class, the class of the of the league. And, of course, we had guys, we had a guy on our team by the name of Stan Makita, and pound for pound was as good as any of them. And uh, as far as goaltenders were concerned, uh, we were fortunate to have Glenn Hall, who played over five? Think about this: over five hundred consecutive games, as and most, and as a goaltender and without a mask, most of those. And, Crazy. And Tony Esposito, uh, and, uh, sorrowfully, we lost Tony uh, just a short time ago, and uh, he's going to be. He was going to. He's going to. He and Maryland are going to be missed in the community. They're a pillar of strength, and and uh, I think I've named a bunch of them, uh, enough of them to know the kind of people that I, I enjoyed playing against and with. That's fantastic. Oh, the story well, I was going to tell you. Uh, who are we talking about? We're talking about Gordon Howe. Uh, Howe and Orr and Be Bellevue and Oh, the Rocket. Yeah, that's a, that, 19 and 59, I believe. We played, uh, we ended up in third spot, played against the mighty Montreal Canadiens. And they beat us uh, in the first round. And Boston played against 
I, I want to say maybe Toronto or um, Detroit. I don't, I'm not sure. But I know in the finals, it was Boston against Montreal. And it's in Montreal. I think the likely the sixth game, maybe, or the seventh game, maybe, maybe the last game of the Stanley Cup finals. And uh, the game ended in a 2 2 tie. And they were going into overtime. The rule was uh, after regulation, none of the players could go on with the likes of who uh, uh, was Montreal's great announcer. Was it was it Foster Hewitt? Uh, no, that was Toronto's. Um, oh, isn't that awful? Danny Gallivan. Danny I'm, Gallivan. That's I'm right. sorry. So instead of having one of the players on. Uh, of, from the Montreal Canadiens or the Boston Bruins, uh, Frank Salke Sr. came on to talk with, with Danny. And uh, one thing led to another, and finally uh, Danny said, Well, Mr. Salke, you're a rocket, because Mr. Salke was a great rocket fan. Well, Mr. Salke, your great rocket hasn't done much tonight. And uh, I remember... Clearly, watching it on TV, Mr. Selke never batted an eye, but he said, but Danny, the game isn't over yet. They came out, dropped the puck for the start of overtime. It was the pocket to Moore to Rocket, who cut across the Boston blue line, and in front of a guy by the name of Armstrong that played defense for Boston at that time, fired a wrist shot from just inside the blue line, and Dippy Simmons pulled it out from behind. And there the Rocket had scored another game winner in overtime. That's awesome. Mr. Selke, the Rocket hasn't done much. And then all he does is score the winning goal, goal. in overtime. <laughs> Those are the kind story. of people that I played against back from 57 to 72. And that was the time of Montreal's great dynasty, the well, five well, straight well, Stanley Cups, well, no, right? No, let me uh, – we, we broke the, the – they were on their way to winning six Stanley Cups when we beat them. And you beat them. In, in the uh, uh, 61 That's right. Stanley Cup semifinals. Uh, Glenn Hall stood on his ear and had uh, shut him out twice in wow. Montreal uh, to help us. And he was the guy that got us in the finals against Detroit. And we knew after beating Montreal that it was just going to be a cakewalk against Detroit. And we beat Detroit in six right in Detroit for the 1961 Stanley Cup. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby, it's been an honor and a privilege to be here with you, sir. I've really enjoyed spending the last couple of days with you. You truly are a great man. God bless you, sir. Thank you again. Pleasure is all mine, and thanks, and good luck. I Go after go after the right way that that uh, these countries should be running and, and helping one another out. Amen. <laughs> Amen. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Bobby Hall, just go anywhere on the internet, man. This guy is a legend. Until next time, goodbye. When I was a kid and I came out of Maple Leaf Gardens, Foster Hewitt's mouth, when he used to come on and say, hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. <laughs> the, the hair in the back of my neck used to to raise, raise up an inch and I'll never forget Foster Hewitt saying those words and that was before Newfoundland was part of the Dominion that's right <laughs>
This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.